Luke chapter 20, verse number 1, as we jump back into a conversation that Jesus Christ is having on the temple platform, as he's there preaching the gospel to unsaved Jewish people and dealing with religious leaders who oppose him. Luke chapter 20, verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he, Jesus, answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then believe ye him not? But if we say of men, all the people will stone us. For they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen. And went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandman that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid! And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone that is writ- the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. They feared the people. For they perceived that he had spoken this parable 
against them. They watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men, that they may take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him into the power and authority of the governor. Now, some of you have been or are currently in the military, have a military background. And so I have no doubt that some of you, maybe many of you, have been part of or been observant of a change of command in a military setting, a change of command ceremony. When somebody is being relieved of responsibility and somebody else is picking up that responsibility. Change of command ceremony. I have read that the change of command ceremony is one of the most common ceremonies in military life, and it's rooted in military history all the way back into the 18th century. An official ceremony marking the change of command from one person to another. When You know, sometimes that change of command is a very positive thing. Someone's got a promotion. They've moved up the ranks somewhere, and they are uh, leaving their responsibilities, uh, and somebody else would be picking up those responsibilities. And maybe, and I don't know, I'm, I've never been in the military, and so I don't know all of the minutiae and details, but I can imagine that sometimes a change of command may not be a positive situation. Maybe somebody has been guilty of neglect in their duty, or even worse than that, a dereliction of duty. And are being relieved of their responsibility. And somebody else is taking over that responsibility. Well, our text this morning, Jesus Christ is announcing the most significant change of command that has ever been announced anywhere in any aspect of human history. We're going to look this morning at a change of command. Our ushers are bringing you a handout from behind you, so make sure you get one of those handouts for this morning's message, and it'll give you some some things to think about and even to take home with you and consider in the days ahead. The message this morning revolves around this change of command and addresses the question of how important is Jesus Christ to me personally? How important is Jesus Christ to me personally? As an individual, how important is Jesus Christ to us collectively as a church? And you'll notice when you get your little handout that the bluff this morning, the bottom line up front is this. What you do with Jesus will either leave you robust or pulverized into powder. That sounds pretty, uh, pretty strong, but that's the language of the Bible. That's the language of the Old and New Testaments. That's the language that Jesus used at the change of command when he described those to whom Jesus Christ is not important. He said, you will be pulverized into powder. Well, the day began on this, uh, this Tuesday, the day of conflict that we're studying. The day began with a confrontation between Jesus Christ and the religious leaders of an apostate Judaism. And the controversy revolved around Jesus' authority. Does he have the authority to do what he did yesterday on Monday? And if he does 
think that he has that authority. Where did he get it? Who gave him that authority? Jesus Christ had gone into the temple platform area the day before and declared that the religious leaders of Israel had turned it into a den of robbers and uh, as a result of the merchandising enterprises created by these religious leaders called the Bazaar of Annas. And, and so uh, these people have met the authority of Jesus Christ and now the religious leaders are stewing over what Jesus Christ had done. And so Jesus comes on Tuesday. He's there on the temple platform. He's teaching. He's preaching the gospel to the unsaved when he's confronted with these religious leaders. Let's back up and just get a little bit of a a taste for what has just been happening. At the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus traveled down the Jordan River Valley to Jericho and up to Bethany where he spent the night with uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, his dear friends. On Sunday morning, he traveled in and stopped at Bethpage, where his disciples got a little donkey, brought it out to him. And on Sunday, Jesus Christ rode up to the crest of the Mount of Olives, and as he came down into the Kidron Valley and up on the other side of the valley to enter into Jerusalem, Jesus Christ crested that valley, and there lying before him, was hundreds of thousands of people who had gathered for Passover. It was this time of year. We're coming up on Passover. They had gathered from all over the world, from around Israel. They had gathered for Passover. Hundreds of thousands. They're in tents everywhere. The place is crowded with people. And Jesus comes over the crest of the Mount of Olives. And as he rides down that incline with all of those people and the temple platform in front of him, he begins to weep uncontrollably. We studied that some time back, how Jesus Christ wept because the people just didn't get it. They did not understand that God had visited them to bring them salvation and so many were rejecting him and began to weep. Jesus went on into Jerusalem he walked around the platform, saw the bazaar of Annas and all of the, uh, the hypocrisy and the mockery of the, of the apostate Judaism. And then he came back and he spent Sunday night in Bethany with his friends. Monday morning, Jesus Christ uh, came back into Jerusalem, went to the bazaar of Annas that he had observed the evening before. And he declared that it had been made into a den of robbers and he... And he cleaned house, a a, uh, shocking display, physical display of power as Jesus Christ kicked over tables and drove the money changers out of the place and made quite a scene and said, this is my house. It is a house of prayer, but you have turned it in to a robber's den of thieves. Well, Jesus Christ cleaned house, and then Monday he came back to Bethany and spent Monday night with his friends. Tuesday morning, the morning that we're studying currently, Jesus Christ came back into the temple platform, and according to 
chapter 20, verse 1, he's preaching the gospel and he's teaching the people when the religious leaders, stewing from what he had done the day before, and no doubt having planned their strategy of how they will take back their turf and drive Jesus out of town, they confronted Jesus and demanded of him by what authority he did these things. Our last message, we dealt with Jesus' response to them. How he didn't give them an answer specifically, but rather he asked them a question that came to the heart of whether they recognized his authority. He asked them about the baptism of John. And they knew that if they say they believe John's baptism came from God, then they will be shown to be hypocrites because they did not receive the teaching and submit to baptism. Jesus Christ chose baptism as the, as the singular event that would display the lack of their heart belief in the authority of Jesus Christ. That still is today. First thing Jesus ever asks a new saved person to do is get baptized. He doesn't ask them, he commands them. What they do in that first step of obedience reveals from their heart whether they believe Jesus has the authority to tell them to get baptized and to display the testimony of their salvation or whether they do not believe Jesus has the authority to tell them to get baptized. And so Jesus used baptism as the singular thing to point out to these religious leaders that they did not bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus told a story. And that's our subject for this morning. The story that Jesus Christ told. Now Luke gives us a very much of an abbreviated account of what is happening on Tuesday, the day of conflict. Matthew spent several chapters recording more events, more detailed teaching that Jesus gave on this day of conflict. But we're limiting our attention to Luke's abbreviated account. And Luke records a story that Jesus Christ told immediately after this conversation about authority. Verse number 9 says, Then began he to speak to the people this parable. What are we going to learn today from this story that Jesus Christ told? Well, we're, we're going to break the sermon into two parts. The first part will be the longer part. It's going to be uh, showing us clarity of truth through a simple story. And then we will deal with some application at the end. Clarity through a story. You know, Jesus' stories were profound. He was the master storyteller. Uh, he taught so much Doctrinal theological truth with simple stories that everyone related to. A parable is simply a story that everyone understands in that culture. For us, in, in Western culture, 2,000 years removed from Jesus' audiences, we have to go back and understand the culture and the customs of the people to understand what they thought in their minds when Jesus told the story. Only then can we grasp the doctrinal theological truth that Jesus Christ intends for us to understand as we read the story. So a parable is just a story from common life of a Jewish person living 2,000 years ago that Jesus uses to illustrate a profound truth that he wants them to meditate on and to consider. Now, the, the key to this parable the understanding this story is given to us at the end of it in verse number 19. 
And I want you to notice in verse number 19, and I'm going to skip one phrase that's in the middle, so that the pronouns can be understood as applying to the proper person in the sentence. Verse number 19, And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. That's the key to understanding the story. The scribes and the Pharisees got it. It hit them straight between the eyes. This is a change of command. They're out. And they got the message real clear. They knew that Jesus Christ had spoken this parable against them. And so they immediately are wanting to kill him, to get rid of him. Of course, they can't do that because of the phrase that I skipped. The phrase that I skipped said they were afraid, they feared the people that were anxious to hear what Jesus Christ was saying. Jesus' story is directed toward Israel's spiritual leaders. And Jesus is announcing in no uncertain terms, they're out. And there has been a change of command. And leadership is being passed to somebody else. Now, in the story, we read it a moment ago. It's a very simple story to grasp. It doesn't take a lot of explanation. I've given you just a couple of uh, bullet points about the stories to help it uh, grasp, help us grasp the clarity of it. The Bible says that um, in verse number 9, that a certain man planted a vineyard. The certain man is God. The vineyard is the people of God who carry out the work of God. God planted a vineyard that will produce his will on earth as it is done in heaven. He started with Abraham choosing a family. He developed that family throughout Old Testament history into the nation of Israel. And this people group are the people whom God has chosen as his tool to accomplish his work on earth. And God was accomplishing throughout the Old Testament his work on earth through this group of people. By the way, their first major responsibility was to inscripturate God's truth. And God used the nation of Israel to record what we have as the Old Testament. And then their subsequent responsibility was to evangelize the world. They were to show forth the salvation of God to the entire earth, to every creature. They miserably failed and became a snobbish, self-conceited, racist people that thought they were better than everybody else and looked down upon Gentiles and called them dogs. So they miserably failed as the entity that God would use to accomplish his work on earth regarding the evangelization of the world. Now, the, the certain man who planted the vineyard led it out to husbandmen. Husbandmen is an old English word that means farmer, a tender of the land. In this case, the tender of the vineyard. The husbandman was not the owner of the land. He was not the owner of the vineyard. He was hired as a steward to tend the land and the vineyard for the sake of the owner. So God establishes a people group through whom he will accomplish his work on earth. And then he puts the responsibility of leading that people group into the hands of stewards that don't own the people, that don't own the entity, but are responsible to cultivate it and to lead it and to direct it 
and to gain uh, productivity for the owner, God. And so God established the priesthood in the land of Israel. The religious leaders that, that morphed out into the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all these various groups of religious leaders in Israel. They were the husbandmen, the farmers responsible to God for maintaining God's work on earth. The Bible tells us in verse number 9 that the owner then went into a far country for a long time. The long time is Old Testament history. From the time God instituted this, began with Abraham and then Moses on Mount Sinai, establishing the law and the priesthood and all of that, right up until the time of Jesus Christ, it was a long time that the owner allowed the assigned stewards or leaders to lead this people. The Bible says that the owner, when the time came for the harvest, when the right time came, the owner sent a servant to be able to gain some of the productivity that belongs to the owner, God. And when the servant came, the caretakers, the stewards, mistreated and and manhandled and, and beat the servant and sent him away. The owner sent a second with the same result, and the owner sent a third with the same result. Who are these? Who are these servants that God sends to this people group and this religious leadership to deal with what God is expecting out of that? Those are the Old Testament preachers, the Old Testament prophets that God sent over and over and over again to preach to the religious leaders, to correct them, to, to guide them, to speak to them about what they should be doing. And those Old Testament prophets were responsible uh, to deliver the message of God to those stewards, the priesthood and the religious leadership of Israel. Well, they were treated poorly, and that poor treatment was in the parable corresponds to the treatment of the Old Testament preachers. If you're a student of your Bible, you know the Old Testament preachers weren't treated very well. They were sometimes put to death. They were sometimes put in prison. They were sometimes mocked and ridiculed. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's extended account of this same day, Jesus speaking on this same day, Matthew records Jesus saying this to the religious leaders. It's a little bit dicier in its language. Jesus Christ said to these religious leaders, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore? Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you kill and crucify, and some you scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, All these things shall come upon this generation. Now, that should catch your ears. Upon this generation. Because it was the day before yesterday, on Palm Sunday, 
when Jesus rode into Jerusalem weeping, he said, this generation is going to suffer for what is happening this week. Jesus said that upon the leadership of Israel shall God's judgment come upon this generation. You see, they treated the Old Testament preachers as they would come and deliver God's message. They treated them very cruelly. And so the owner said, well, what, am I, what, what, what do I do now? I've sent preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher, and they reject them. What do I do now? He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my beloved son. Surely, the leadership of Israel, when they see my beloved son, they will honor him. But they didn't. When the son of the owner came to the vineyard, the steward saw the son and they said, this is our opportunity. If we can get rid of the son, we can become the owners of the vineyard. We'll just take it over because he's the heir. What a delusion. You think dad's going to sit back there and let you kill his son and let you take his property? What a delusion. Do you understand the delusion of people who live in South Riding today who think if I can just get rid of Jesus, I can own my own life? If I can just get rid of Jesus, I can be the owner of all that I am and all that I have. What a delusion. The Creator owns every saved and every unsaved person on the earth and everything that everybody owns on the earth. He is the creator who owns it all. And for these stewards to have the delusion that they can kill the son and take ownership of the son's property, which is ultimately belonging to the father, is a certainly a delusion. And so in verses 14 and 15, the Bible says that these stewards, the that God had appointed as his stewards. The Bible says that they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? What is the owner going to do now? They have mistreated every preacher he sent. They murdered the son. What will God do now. Verse 15 tells us, therefore, what sh- therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and give the vineyard to others. He'll come and destroy the religious leadership of Israel. He'll destroy the priesthood. He'll destroy all of the different parts of the religious leadership of Israel. He'll take away from them their responsibility to lead the work of God on earth. And he'll give it to somebody else. This is Jesus' change of command. The priesthood of Israel that God had entrusted since Moses delivered the the information about the priesthood. 
from, from all of those years, God is now relieving the leadership of Israel of their responsibility on earth. And he'll give this responsibility to somebody else. Now you'll see that come to its fullest fruition in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, when Jesus Christ said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. No longer is it go priesthood of Israel and evangelize the world. No longer is it Israel. Go ye therefore as the entity for accomplishing my will on earth. No. Go ye therefore. The followers of Jesus Christ. Change of command. No longer will Israel be the entity through whom God will work on earth. No longer will the leadership of Israel be responsible for organizing and strategizing and leading Israel to evangelize the world. No, that is going to be given to somebody else. This is a profound change of command. And the religious leaders understood what Jesus was saying. That's why they said at the end of verse 16, and when they heard it, they said, God forbid! God forbid that we should be relieved of our duty. God forbid that we should be relieved of our responsibility. God forbid that our our responsibility in command is being rejected. And who is being put in our place? This Nazarene itinerant preacher? These fishermen? This publican Matthew? You're putting them in command to replace us, the priesthood of Israel? God forbid that this thing should happen. Oh, they understood exactly what Jesus Christ was teaching. They knew exactly what Jesus Christ was announcing. You guys are done. You're fired. You're out of here. It's over for you. But in your place, I'm going to take the people that I have spent the last three years training and teaching. And those people are going to become the command To complete the Bible by giving us the New Testament and evangelizing the world. Now this this developed gradually. I want you to understand. When the religious leadership in Jerusalem were presented with Jesus Christ and all of his miracles and all of his teachings. He was presented as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. That's how he's introduced by John the Baptist. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the healer, he's the miracle worker, he's the raiser of the dead. He can fulfill all of the prophetic miracles of the kingdom of God. When the religious leadership of Israel saw and heard Jesus Christ, they gradually became firm in the rejection. We don't want him. That became gradually to the point they finally Claimed that Jesus was demon possessed, and Jesus said, You just committed the unpardonable sin. You've crossed your Rubicon. It's all over for you, religious leaders. And so there was a gradual. You see, you go back and, and read the Gospels watching for this, you'll see that Jesus chose 12 men, called them apostles. That was the beginning of him preparing the new leadership. 
We see then that he sent those 12 apostles out with power and authority over demons, diseases. They healed. They preached the gospel. They had the power and the truth to do what religious leaders in Israel did not do and could not do. Jesus was giving his followers power and authority over demons and over the physical body that the religious leadership of Israel was never entrusted with. That's recorded in Luke 9. In Luke 10, he added 70 more and sent those 70 out with the authority and responsibility that went far beyond anything the Jewish leaders had ever been given. Then in Matthew 13, Jesus Christ taught the mystery parables of the kingdom. Mystery, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it speaks of something that's mysterious that had never been told before. It was not revealed through the Old Testament preachers as prophecy for the future. It was totally mysterious and unknown. But Jesus began to give to his ragtag group of fishermen and publicans. He began to give this ragtag group knowledge and information, truth that the religious leadership of Israel did not understand and know. Jesus called them the kingdom parables, the mystery parables of the kingdom. Then a couple chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus Christ gave direct knowledge to his ragtag group that had never been given to the religious leadership of Israel. He said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you unlock will be unlocked in heaven. Whatever you lock will be locked in heaven. Do you realize that Jesus Christ gave to this change of command the, the authority to unlock and lock heaven? You know, every time you give out a gospel track, every time you talk to someone about Christ, every time you try to reach an unsaved person, you're putting a key in the lock of their heart and you're trying to open heaven to them. And if they respond to the gospel that you give to them, you have unlocked heaven and they will be unlocked in heaven. It will be unlocked in heaven. If they reject the message that you teach them, the gospel track to you, that you give them, if they reject it, Heaven has been locked where they cannot enter in. Jesus Christ revealed truth about the responsibilities of this new leadership that had never recorded as having been given to the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel. Now, mind you, this is not a permanent change of command. You understand? This is a temporary change of command. Romans chapter 11 makes it very clear. The book of Revelation makes it clear. The Old Testament book of Zechariah makes it clear that this change of command is until the tribulation period. But during the tribulation period, God will bring back into focus this people group of Israel as his key to evangelizing the world. 144 evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, will evangelize the world in the tribulation period. This change of command is temporary. It's not permanent. It's temporary until God's ready to be able to use Israel again. But Israel's leadership cries out, this cannot be. God forbid that this should happen. We're being replaced by Jesus and these no way. And so Jesus says something that I think is critically important to each of us today. In verse number 17, 
After they have said, God forbid, Jesus Christ said to them. And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? And he quotes Psalm 118. Could I put it in a little bit more modern vernacular? Jesus looked at the religious leadership who had been entrusted by God as his stewards to do his work, to lead Israel to accomplish his work on earth. Jesus looked at these religious leaders who are being fired from their position today. Jesus looked at these religious leaders and says, you don't know your Bible. You don't know your Bible. You're a religious leader. And you don't even know your own Bible. And he quoted Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And Matthew, or Luke records it in verse number 9, verse number 8, verse number 17. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Don't you know your Bible? Don't you know what that cornerstone is? Don't you understand that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of the work of God on earth? Don't you recognize and understand the scriptures itself? You know, when religious leaders don't know the Bible, truth degenerates into apostasy. And I want you, I want you to catch this. This change of command, Jesus Christ looks at the old command that failed, utterly failed God and failed the people of God and led Israel into apostasy. Jesus looked at them and said, the problem is you don't know your Bible. You're a religious leader. People are trusting you. People are believing what you say. And you don't even know your own Bible. And he quoted this profound passage of Scripture about a cornerstone. You see, a mason's cornerstone was the most important stone in the building of a building. Going back into the culture of Jesus Christ, Masons, and Jesus was a mason. Jesus and his dad, Joseph, were masons in Nazareth. They were artificers of stone and wood. Jesus knew what a mason, he knew the work of creating a cornerstone. You see, the cornerstone is the stone that sets the angles and the lines of the entire building. If a cornerstone, if this surface of the cornerstone, let's say, this is the, going to be the corner of the building. And so this is the cornerstone in the corner of the building. If this side of the stone has an angle to it, then the wall, as it goes up, is going to have an angle to it. If this side of the cornerstone has an angle to it, then this wall, as it goes up, is going to have an angle to it. If this corner is not a perfect 90-degree corner, then this wall and this wall are going to go in one of two directions. If the surface of the cornerstone is not flat, it's going to impact the wall going up. 
The cornerstone. Masons would create a cornerstone. And then a builder building a building would examine all of the stones the mason has has chiseled out of solid rock. He would examine stone after stone if, if there was a problem with this angle or a problem with this angle or a problem with this angle. He would throw the cornerstone into a pile. They'll use that for someplace else in the building. And he would keep looking till he found the cornerstone that was perfect because it determines what's going to be built from that cornerstone in every direction. And Jesus Christ said, don't you know your Bible? God has a perfect cornerstone. And if the builder rejects the perfect cornerstone because he doesn't like something about it, he has committed a huge flaw. Because the cornerstone, the most important stone... You've got to get it right, and you've got to choose the right one. And when they rejected Jesus Christ, they were rejecting the perfect cornerstone for the future work of God from that day to our day now today. This stone which the builder refused has become the head of the corner, Psalm 118.22 says. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that's what Jesus quoted. He said, if you guys knew, you're rejecting, you're rejecting, you're rejecting the perfect cornerstone this week when you kill me. You're ruining everything. Jesus quoted it. Three of the four Gospels record Jesus quoting Psalm 118, applying it to himself. But I like when Peter, who was there and heard Jesus quote it on Tuesday, the day of conflict, in just a few weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension back to heaven, Peter is going to be on this same temple platform with these same chief priests and high priests, with this same religious leadership of Israel who crucified Jesus Christ, and Peter is going to look at them and put his bony finger on the tip of their nose. He said, the one you slew, the one you killed, the one you got rid of is the cornerstone. And he quoted again, Jesus Christ quoting Psalm 118. You'll read it in the book of, uh, book of Ephesians chapter number four. You'll read it about four or five times in the book of First. Peter chapter 2. Peter and Paul, who heard, Peter who heard Jesus Christ on the day of conflict, and Paul later who learned as Jesus taught him New Testament truth, these men quoted and quoted and quoted. This is huge. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and he's being rejected by the leaders. And Jesus Christ said to these leaders back in Luke 20, verse number, uh, verse number, um, 18, Jesus said, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. And on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Ancient rabbis had a saying that has been 
found in ancient rabbinical writings that goes like this. If a stone falls on a pot, it will smash the pot. If a pot falls on a stone, it will smash the pot. Either way, the pot is smashed because the stone will not be broken. And Jesus Christ looked at these religious leaders and he said, you will be ground into powder. I, the stone, will grind you into powder. You cannot encounter Jesus Christ and reject him without being ground into powder. That's pretty strong language from Jesus Christ. You see, just two days ago on Monday, Jesus wept. He wept because these people didn't get it. And he told them that stones would cry out. And that generation would know that they had been ground into powder. And you can go to Israel today. You can go to Jerusalem today. You can go to the corner of the old temple platform just several yards down from the western wall where Jews meet and pray. And you can look at all of the pile of these big, huge stones that Titus in 70 A.D., pushed to the edge of the temple platform and pushed off the temple platform. And there's big piles of these gigantic stones. And to this day, those stones cry out, if you reject the cornerstone, he will grind you into powder. And that generation was ground into powder in 70 A.D. for rejecting the cornerstone Himself. That's what Jesus Christ wept over on Palm Sunday. Now let me quickly give you two takeaways that are worth pondering. Takeaway number one, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. Generations of Jewish people listened to religious leaders who didn't know their Bibles. Matthew fifteen fourteen. Jesus Christ had warned these same religious leaders. He said they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. When you follow a religious leader who doesn't know his Bible. When you follow a religious leader that can't teach the word of God theologically, doctrinally, in depth. You are following a blind man. And when the blind follow the blind, they both fall into the ditch. Pastors are told in the New Testament to preach the word. They're told to declare all the counsel of God. They're told to study, to show themselves approved unto God. And shallow pastors who don't know the Bible and can't teach it in its depth and don't understand what's happened the last 2,000 years theologically set churches up to embrace apostasy when it comes down the pike. 
That's why Ephesians chapter 4 says God gives to the church pastors who are teachers, pastor teachers. So that we as the members of the church won't be blown this way by every wind of doctrine. Blown that way. This favorite teacher said this. And this radio preacher said that. And my favorite big preacher said this. And, and, and the winds of doctrine blow people from side to side. God gives a church a pastor teacher so that people can become theologically, doctrinally sound and know their Bible. So they're not blown this way and that way. The first Takeaway I see from this change of command is you gotta be you gotta be careful who you listen to. You gotta be careful who you follow. James 3 1, James said, be not many masters. The word master there means a teacher, one who is, is entrusted with the responsibility of teaching others. He said, don't be anxious to be that, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. The person entrusted with the responsibility to study, to know his Bible, to teach his Bible, to preach his Bible, to build doctrinally astute people who aren't blown this way and that way by every wind of doctrine. They will be held to a higher level of responsibility because if they be blind and a blind person follows them into the ditch, just like Israel's leaders led generations of Jewish people into hell because they didn't know their Bible and they rejected the very cornerstone himself. Be careful who you listen to. Just a couple of weeks ago, a pastor of a church down in Nashville, Tennessee, announced that their progressive church no longer believes that the Bible is the word of God. He announced it on Facebook and he said, and I quote, as progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. We know that it can't live up to impossible modern standards. We know this old archaic book written thousands of years ago cannot stand up to modern standards. And so we don't expect it to. We don't believe it is errant. We don't believe it is inerrant. We don't believe that it is infallible. We strive to more clearly articulate what Scripture is and isn't. We're honest to say it's not all the Word of God. You can't trust it. It's not a science book. It's not a book of absolutes. We no longer believe the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible isn't the Word of God, the pastor said. It is not inerrant or infallible. It is a product of community, a Bible of texts, multivocal, a human response to God, living and dynamic. Did you notice? Living and dynamic. In other words, it's always changing. It's always flowing. It's living. It's a living book. It changes from generation to generation. That's what the liberals have been telling Americans in American public schools for the last couple of generations about our Constitution. The United States Constitution is a fluid book. It's a living document. What it said 200 years ago may not be good for us today. We've got to change it. That's what the liberals say about the Word of God. They're the same. They're consistent politically and spiritually. What we have recorded is inaccurate for this generation, and it's not to be trusted. That is the pastor of a large progressive church in Nashville, Tennessee. 
We're living in a day of compromise where pastors are apologizing for what God says about issues that are at the center of the social, cultural rejection of God, His Word, and His truth. You know, there are a lot of people who are embarrassed by the Bible. They're embarrassed by a God of the Bible. So much liberal jargon has been pumped into them in education that they're kind of embarrassed about what God says. About morality. About sexuality. About gender. About any of the hot topic issues that our world is dealing with. We're kind of embarrassed by what God says. Be careful who you listen to. There are, there are proponents of the critical race theory that's being forced into the Loudoun County public school classrooms all across Loudoun County. Millions and millions of dollars have been spent to educate the educators on critical race theory. Problem is they've run into some parents of some of those kids that oppose critical race theory. So now last week we learned in the news that the proponents of critical race theory, teachers, school board members in Loudoun County, have begun to collect the names of parents of Loudoun County Public School students who are vocal in their opposition to critical race theory. They begin to assimilate names, addresses, cell phone numbers, social media accounts. They're publicizing them. They're spreading them around. We must intimidate the conservatives. We must silence the conservatives. We must make them afraid to say anything, lest they be doxxed. It's been turned over to the Loudoun County Sheriff's Department for investigation. We live in a strange world today, difficult days. Are we embarrassed about our God? Change of command. Old command is out because they didn't know their Bible and led generations to hell. A new command is in. The new command is Jesus Christ and his followers. A new command who is going to be responsible to evangelize the world. A new command. They, they sometimes don't have the degrees that the high priesthood had. Sometimes they don't have the clout and position. Sometimes they're like a fisherman from Galilee or a tax collector from Galilee. But the new command has the power of the Spirit of God upon it and the responsibility to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every creature in the world. The change of command has been under operation for 2,000 years now. You're part of it. You are a part of the reality of the change of command. The new leadership doing the work of God on earth. And let me say in closing, we've got to be careful how we relate to Jesus Christ. We've got to be careful how we relate to Jesus Christ. Because some people today like to say, well, I sure do like his compassion. But I don't know if I agree with what he said about marriage. I think I'll reject him. Oh, I really like the way he was gentle with the kids. Loving and compassionate and kind. But what he said about marriage? 
What he said about gender? I don't know that I agree with him. Nobody has the opportunity to pick and choose what they like about Jesus. You can't like one angle and reject him because of another angle. You take him as a package deal. Every attribute, every characteristic, every sermon he preached, everything that he said, he's God. He's perfect. And he is beautiful in the sum total of all that he is as a compassionate, loving God, weeping over the people who want to reject him because there's something they don't like about him. And we can't give people the thought that they can pick and choose what they like about God. He's a package deal. Study him. Read about him. Observe him. Watch him. Become enthralled by him. He is the most compassionate, merciful, grace-filled, loving person that you'll ever meet in your life. And when you get to know him for who he is, you will be drawn by bands of love to embrace him. And when you do, take him lock, stock, and barrel. He's the cornerstone. And for 2,000 years, everything on earth built to do the work of God, it's all of its lines of demarcation from the character and person that the religious leaders rejected in Israel. But we've accepted as our Savior.